this particular recording, to give some background to this, I hopefully will, let's say hopefully, will be recording a podcast with Matthew Gibson. I'm waiting for Matthew Gibson to be available. We were supposed to record yesterday. I put it in the calendar for today. He thankfully is available today, but there has been a power outage in Toronto. So I thought rather than stifle a possibility for my rules are better actually coming out around this thing, I have a number of things that I wanted to talk about. I'm going to record my rules are better. And if we get Matthew Gibson on, that would just be the icing on the cake. But I appreciate I need to put out content at this stage. I recorded a podcast with Barney Dicker on Friday, actually Friday morning, first thing. And Barney hasn't yet put this podcast out. Now, Barney's podcast, Loco Ludus, is on a platform called Anchor. And part of the Anchor platform is firstly relatively minimal edits, although Barney is putting edits into his podcast, but a call-in format. So people call in and create discussion pieces, which kind of Barney carries on with. My perspective coming to this from the outside is I find it relatively difficult to track the various participants, and I've tried to listen to the podcasts of the various participants. Let's call them anchor casts because they're not what I would traditionally call a podcast. And their anchor casts are a series of call-ins. So it's like a series of call-ins in a series of call-ins with a series of call-ins that are kind of connected in this web, which means that I think the participants in this anchor thing do very well through it. Anyone looking from the outside just, it seems to be headache causing for me, unfortunately. My hope is that Barney will produce interviews and anchor cast things, and the interviews will remain very separate from the anchor cast things. And I think the Andy Chambers interview is a good example of this. Anchor clearly works for some folk. It's not going to be a format that I'm going to be adopting anytime soon. And I find it really very difficult to actually consume podcasts, which are like six or seven people talking where there's no like formalized introduction or anything. It's like ongoing conversations on conversations on conversations where I've missed two thirds of the conversation. So it's all very curious, but it's a new podcasting format. And I think hopefully it will mature out and we'll end up with things that I can actually interact with. But I did have a wonderful conversation with Barney. And part of the wonderful conversation with Barney was discussing the just plain chaos rules with regards to what I'm calling easy dice, which are one sixth, one third, one half dice. So one color on one surface, two colors on two other surfaces, and then the remainder I'm leaving blank. Now, the problem I found, so I recorded, I've recorded a series of videos, uh, many of which have featured in this podcasting feed, some of which also feature on YouTube. My aim is to put the podcasts into this feed first with primacy. So only some of the ones appear on YouTube. I recorded about 40 minutes with the camera slightly pointing too far down and missing actually where the enemies were located in one recording and went through the formality of having the one, two, three, four, five, six points to roll and do things in. So I wouldn't miss any rules. This is the previous video, the one that has actually been aired. I did miss rules in. The problem here is that there were too many dice rolls and it became too ridiculously overwhelming that you had to roll five sets of dice in order to resolve combat. That just seemed to me to be way too extreme. And I talked in the discussion with Barney associated with using to hit different roles. So for example, the way I drew this is like a target with numbers where certain numbers are obviously misses and some numbers are hits. For example, you know, a sniper would say headshot and then two out of six of the dice would be a headshot. One out of six would be a body shot and the remaining would be misses. So 
This works very well for really good aiming weapons, like sniper rifles and regular rifles to a certain extent. But things like submachine guns and shotguns, it's just useless for. So I've kind of stepped back from that rule and just looked at how I can simplify the roles in between. So I'm still thinking about this, but it's something that I'll probably record a video about in the near future. Now, I've gotten some negative feedback from Martin Kearney, long-time listener, long-time participant. He's been following my podcasts for roughly a decade now, if not more. And Martin notes that the the easy dice are just too complicated, which is kind of goes against the purpose, but maybe it's just seeing those dice versus regular dice being used. And I'm really looking for feedback through the video series because I do it at my own pace. I suspect I probably do it far too fast for most viewers. I suspect I don't reference rules enough. It's more associated with every step of the way along modifying rules. And I also talked with Barney associated with the Orcs vs. Humans and in fact, the Orcs vs. Humans, Humans is designed specifically to show from the very beginning how I would create a rule system. So slow and plotting, but at the same point, a means of illustrating or here videoing every step of the way along the process. Now, I have a couple of things coming up where I am going to be creating a rule system for the game at work. And it's either going to be Victorian London or it's going to be Zombies at the other extreme. The zombies require me to go outside and cut a lot of, what would you call it, um, 3D printed sprues of zombies. Now, I tried to do it inside, and bits of plastic just ended up absolutely everywhere, so I can't do it inside. Now, in parallel to this, I have a miniature page who's finishing a bunch of Victorian London figures for me. So I think I can create some kind of dark horror game out of that, where the horror characters are never actually seen or created through some... I don't know, some exploration of the rules. So I'm going to be looking at that in the new year as something to actually playtest. I also wanted to give as an example a Dark Age skirmish game. And I have the figures, well, I purchased the figures uh, some time ago from Black Tree Design. Black Tree Design is infamous associated with anywhere from one to three months. It's interesting their orc range is no longer available online because they did an Indiegogo associated with retooling their orc line and they've pulled their orc line off their site kind of boring but anyway well it stops you from black friday sales events with black tree design or what's it called eoe anyway whatever it's called now the purpose of showing the dark age skirmish game from you know beginning to playability is really to illustrate some ideas in rule grouping and i think certainly orcs versus humans because it's it's in an environment with the hexes Hexes define all distance, move, define range of weapons, all this kind of stuff. It's a simplification on a lot of stuff. And what I want to do with the Dark Age Skirmish game is actually indicate that, you know, with the multiplicity of weapon armors, different kinds of fighting techniques, a variety of different things, and range weapons as well, you can create quite compelling rule systems that are relatively simple, in fact, very simple. And I'm going to use the Easy Dice as part of that. I'm actually quite excited about using the Easy Dice in the skirmish game, because it eliminates a lot of, well, eliminates a lot of the stuff that Martin Kearney likes, but a number of other players apparently don't like, and it simplifies the rules dramatically. The game at work has a very particular feel to it, and what I was thinking of doing initially was using an existing rule set. Um, Osprey had an existing rule set, I think, that I was thinking of using, and it just doesn't ring true. I want to actually create the rules, I want to create some of the mythology behind the zombies. I want to do a few tweaks. And doing that enables me also to show 
through video here, the kinds of things that I put together in these kind of games, in particular, let's not use the N-word, but in particular, the archetypal stories that could be created around characters in this kind of game. So I think there are lots of interesting things that are coming up in the new year, but I wanted to use this time also as a means of looking back over the past year, because obviously a lot has gone on through this podcast recording. I've had two trips to the UK, not particularly fruitful with regards to the banking, but certainly fascinating with regards to, you know, seeing, for example, Goblin Gaming, which I think is untouchably one of the best game stores I've ever set foot in, but also going to the Orcs Nest twice and doing a few little bits and pieces, exploring actually the state of game stores in London, which was the last trip in August, and obviously also meeting Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston. Now, meeting Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston fits into My Rules Are Better in one regard. It also has, as time has gone on from that meeting, it's kind of forced me to think about what fighting fantasy actually meant in my life, but also just the history of Games Workshop and a number of the changes and points. This comes through in the chat that I have with Barney as well. Just a variety of the different ideas that Games Workshop has been able to spawn really after Jackson and Livingston's influence. They set up the comfortable functioning business part of things to allow the miscreants to kind of play and create these games and miniatures and a bunch of other stuff. So in my own thinking, I got it's kind of come up in various points of this podcast, particularly in interacting with other folk, what the importance was of beating Jackson Livingston in a kind of broader existential sense. And I think really what it's done is given me a lot of intimate insights in very subtle things that perhaps normal people, when they met people like Jackson Livingston, wouldn't pick up on, but certainly I picked up on and I've been thinking a lot about. And a lot of that isn't really something that I can linguistically talk about. What I try to do with Barney in particular, is just to give amusing anecdotes when we have a chance to interact, to just reflect upon that time. But also, nothing can recreate these various points in time now. I think many of these points of time, it's not that they're lost, it's that the evidence of their existence is what is fascinating to me. And in this light, I don't know whether this hobby thing that's being described is a fossil, <laughs> or whether it's an active evolving species, or what it is in this circumstance. But I do reflect very heavily on the luxury that it was to spend time in these two gentlemen's company, and also the nature of what they created in things that were I was very receptive to. So the nature of like writing things down, and making maps, and all this other kind of stuff. It was interesting actually going to Fighting Fantasy Fest and the discussion associated with cheating, because I never cheated in <laughs> books. In fact, I looked at the books as more a means of building my own systems than anything else. And also what's fascinating through this is I don't have a lot of primary memories associated with these books. Going back and being in the midst of adults here, adults that were older than me, where these books were so absolutely central, is just fascinating because it makes me realise that my particular interest in this thing is very different than other people's particular interest in this thing. But when I find a few like-minded folk, you know, that's where the true wonder is. And I guess I can't really reflect more on the meeting with Jackson Livingston other than to say I'm really looking forward to when the dice may come out, like the book that I put the money in for. That would be a real luxury. I'm looking forward to when that actually occurs because I, I don't know. I mean, the, the stuff that they have 
They're fighting fantasy books, which they didn't author, but the History of Fighting Fantasy, Volume 1 and 2, which I think is called You Are the Hero, Volume 1 and 2. I wouldn't rate those books. They're not particularly good books on a variety of levels. They're not really history books. They're anecdote, you know, framed anecdotes put in various areas. And I think what interests me about this whole history is more about the tapestry of characters than it is with individual anecdotes. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about the lead pile if we're doing a year in review. I have... I feel kind of guilty that I didn't give away more miniatures, particularly the folk who contacted me in the latter half of the year in, you know, far-flung corners of the globe that require additional postage and all the additional nonsense. I guess I feel comfortable, mainly because I haven't opened any miniature cases recently, with the lead pile as it is currently. I have made a few eBay purchases, and I have, I have made a few eBay purchases, and I have backed a few Kickstarters. Around the time of my birthday, I bought a gene stealer army, a shooty gene stealer army. Like they're, these are the reasons that armies are sold on eBay. <laughs> a shooty gene stealer army. I can't win with this damn army. Let me put it on eBay. So, and through the year, I'm trying to think what other large ticket purchases I've made. I think that was the only large ticket purchase that I made. I did. This was the year prior. I bought a dwarf army, which was literally pennies on the figure. And, you know, had that painted. So I have a, a period of time that I don't like in dwarves, dwarf army, which is a very curious thing. But yeah, aside from that, I have a couple of Kickstarters that I backed where they're just taking inordinately long. One is associated with, I think, Hungarian troops. And my real concern with this one, I bought a bunch of plastic kits for this too, of vehicles, both German and strange Eastern European tanks and other armored vehicles. Because they were, you know, pennies on the dollar, let's say. And none of this has come to fruition. I've said to the Kickstarter folk, maybe you could just send me the plastic kits because they're done, right? And um, I haven't heard anything back from them. They send maybe once every three months messages just indicating they're probably not competent to actually fulfill this thing, which could be a large chunk of change, actually. I'm not sure. It's in the low hundreds of dollars that I put into this thing. So... If that thing doesn't happen, I think it will truly have burnt me on Kickstarter. Similarly, I have two Kev Adams Kickstarters that I put money into that I haven't seen anything from. I had some interaction with Diego, who is the fellow, he's the Kev Adams herder, let's just say. <laughs> and particularly with regards to his website, there's one figure that I like, which is a goblin with an axe in its teeth, and he's wearing a wolf, uh, you know, wolf skin. And he's down like a wolf with this axe between his teeth, looking very wolf-like. I've never been able to find that through his site. I was able to find a bug in his site where if you transfer the language to, I think, Spanish, you could find this miniature, but you can't find the miniature through English. Contacted him about that, and I got a small number of miniatures which I actually purchased, plus a couple of freebies that he threw in. And I also backed the Black Tree Design Orcs... No, sorry, the Goblins one. I didn't back the Orcs one. I probably should have backed the Orcs one, but I was too fed up with the Goblins one, which just gave me... I don't know... <laughs> 150 goblins, many of which I already have. So at least they were metal. I mean, the worst part of these Kickstarters is when you get a, you know, a bunch of resin chunk and you just think, oh, did, did I, what? I thought it said metal. Why am I getting resin? So anyway, um, in addition to this, the, you know, <laughs> Union army that I sent off, I don't know, maybe eight months ago, still unpainted. Basically, this year really has been a means of 
critically evaluating sending miniatures out to painters. My experience with painters through the end of last year and the start of this year, in fact, through this year, has been just getting rid of painters. <laughs> sending them stuff, either not getting it back or getting it back broken. If ever there was a learning experience through this thing, it is associated with the fact that the miniature painters that I knew and worked with 15 years ago don't exist anymore. And I know that for a fact. Fred Reed doesn't paint miniatures anymore. The guy in Aptos, who I uh, get some stuff to, he, although he charged me double for something and did a bunch of other things, he at least apologised at the end of the year and gave me a discount on some figures that had taken a year plus to get painted. So, you know, he is at least in good karmic standing with me with regards to this thing. The top-of-the-line miniature painters, every single one of them without fail, either, well, in most parts sent me broken miniatures, which from my perspective is just inconceivable that you would paint miniatures professionally and charge a lot of money per miniature and then send broken miniatures. That just strikes me as unfathomable. And that basically cost most of these guys their work with me. Because after a couple of these experiences, in one case, I really just had to say enough. Like, if you don't value your work sufficient to get it to me in one piece, and this isn't rocket science. There are plenty of people who can send miniatures through the post without getting them broken or damaged or having them fly around in transit or all this other kind of stuff so this year has been very critical with regards to the miniature painting thing the folks that i the agency that i use i don't even necessarily want to mention their name but you know i have in, in prior podcasts i'm down to one painter with them they tried to well the other painter who still has miniatures who knows what will ever happen to those things he basically stopped painting for them then they said, well, we've got this other guy in Vegas that we're just starting out with, and this guy just couldn't paint. I mean, I've already paid a rate for a particular figure painter to paint some miniatures. If he can't paint the miniatures anymore, we need to find a figure painter that's comparable. Like, <laughs> There's no bait and switch in this thing. I'm just bored with it. Now I'm just down to a single figure painter with these folks, and it's the fellow who painted the dwarves for me. He's done a bunch of green skins for me as well. He's not, you know, offensive associated with his pricing he's it's a little bit more money that i'd normally want to spend for the quality that he produces but he's there and loyalty for me <laughs> loyalty and consistency are really the only things that i look for genius moments of genius they get you broken figures <laughs> the geniuses can't pack the miniatures to send them back to you the folks that are just relatively consistent and get the figures painted that's fine with me so going into the new year my hope is in theory the hypothesis is that I reduce the number of figures that I'm purchasing. These Kickstarters will run out. My perspective is really only Kev Adams going forwards, and even then, if it's stuff that isn't interesting to me, I really don't think I'll be supporting that. I have a lifetime's worth of lead around me, and I really need to be very appreciative for that. And also I need to be appreciative that for the stuff that I use for the podcast, in particular when I'm playing out battles, my rough-and-ready paint jobs are just fine, to illustrate that. In fact, I think they're better than fine, because rather than being something that's super detailed, they could be something that's immediately obvious from a camera, which I think is the most important thing with regards to these rules going forward. So let's talk a little bit. I've, I've mentioned periodically the various things that I'm going to be looking at in the new year. But to say specifically here, a zombie game, potentially. A Victorian London game, potentially. Probably not, actually. I'll probably move more to the zombies early on. 
a Dark Age skirmish game, and I think critically, probably a World War II skirmish game. I'd like to throw one in there. I was thinking also of maybe doing like a World War One skirmish game and just showing the linking rules that you could do between World War One and World War Two. But let's play it like that. Let's assume that these are going to be the things that come up in the new year. And talking with Barney, it occurred to me that it was also going to be important to put out potentially a role-playing game rule system and some view around that. Like, I mentioned quite comfortably the old rules that I wrote when I was 10, the Britannia rule system. And I thought to myself, why don't I put that out in this podcast? Why don't I rewrite it, formalize it, and get it out through this podcast with the view that this will really illustrate that there are so many different directions this thing could take. And also, I think the interesting thing in the conversation with Barney was that he talked about the way he perceives me from listening to these podcasts. And actually, I think that perception is slightly wrong. I'm trying to... I was There's always a character that is played in podcasts. I've done this for, you know, since 2006. And my wife always points out that I have a podcast character, which is not me, that I portray in these podcasts. But I thought to myself, I'm really not doing myself any justice in just creating these kind of skirmish war games through My Rules Are Better. There's a lot more that can be done through this particular recording. And certainly the conversation with Barney reinstigated that in my mind. So my suspicion is... Do I even see the rules here? Somewhere in my bookshelf, there are these rules, handwritten in pencil <laughs> by a 10-year-old Tom. Can Tom now, <laughs> not 10 years old anymore, can he re-scribe these rules, in particular the scenarios that came through them, into something that would be usable in this podcast? That is an interesting challenge, and that certainly, as I conclude this recording, is something that I wanted to leave with you, the loyal listeners. Something to think about for the end of year period, that early in the new year, these kind of things will be coming through this particular recording. So we still hopefully, maybe, if the storms haven't taken the electricity, my hope is electricity will be connected in the next half hour before I'm scheduled to talk to Matthew Gibson. If it's not, this will be a recording. There'll be videos and stuff that come out before the end of the year, maybe more audio recordings as well. But I just want to put it out there. This is my kind of pseudo end of year wrap up in order to have something like that in the feed. Uh, like I said, if you're interested in corresponding with me, if you'd like to appear on this podcast, this isn't just an exclusive three other people kind of thing. I'm more than happy to have anyone come on this podcast and participate as well. So my email address, bravo alpha romeo, bravo alpha lima echo tango at gmail.com. Easiest way to contact me. Drop me an email if you're interested in participating. And, you know, Barney's in Germany. I can find times to do recordings, sometimes even on the correct days. And, yeah, I'm more than happy to to work out and coordinate times with folks all over the globe to participate in this particular podcast. Thank you very much. Tom Barbalay in San Jose, signing out.